Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of the Leap Takers podcast, the podcast for the curious where I'm interviewing daring European entrepreneurs, investors and shapers from various fields to learn how they got started on their journey and to discover insights, tips, tricks and advice that they gathered so that you too can take the leap. I'm very excited to present to you the newest episode with Christian Janssen. He is the founder of Futuristic VC. Futuristic is a micro venture capital fund that invests in European Nordic pre-seed companies. So in the very early stages of a company's life. And Christian, he actually made his first investment at the age of 14 when he bought shares in his favorite football club. He will tell us a little bit more about that story later in the podcast. He then started his first company when he was at university in 2011, and then he grew it also while studying at university. Following his master's degree in finance uh, from Aarhus University, he co-founded another startup called Reunited Esports, which was a player-owned esports organization with teams competing in Overwatch and Rocket League. After that, he started Futuristic VC, which is the main topic of today's podcast. I came across Christian by reading some of his blog posts on Medium, where he writes about his experience as a young and up-and-coming venture capitalist in Europe. He also has some great posts, including his investment memos that he wrote about some companies he invested in. Then he also had an amazing post about what trade he looks for in founders, or also one about the state of the European startup ecosystem. If you're interested in starting your own company, you know, while you're studying or after graduation, or if, if you're just generally interested in the whole world of micro VCs, I'm sure you will find this episode very interesting and valuable. As always, before we get started, I'd like to share one of my favorite quotes with you. So here it goes. He who jumps into the void owes no explanation to those who stand and watch. This is a quote by Jean-Luc Godard. And I really like this one because it credits the people who actually go out and try to do something and change the world. So having said that, let's get started with today's episode. Hi, Christian. Welcome to the Leap Takers podcast. I'm very excited to have you on the show. And thank you so much for taking the time. Of course. No, really a big pleasure to be on the show. I'm very excited for this. So to get started. I would like you to quickly introduce yourself to the audience that might be not that familiar with you. And if you could just tell them briefly what you've been up to and what you're building or working on right now. Yeah, so I'm originally from Denmark, but I, I now reside in London. So currently I'm building a small VC fund, um, which is sort of mainly focused on the very earliest stages of Nordic investing. So I, I try to cover still quite religiously the five Nordic countries, which is the Scandinavia plus Finland. And, and yeah, so, so I think my story is, is one, and maybe we can get a bit more into this, but my story is really one of, of uh, also failing on a, on a few startups beforehand. So it's been a sort of a murky way into VC, but uh, have been doing this now for roughly three years and then build a portfolio of 23 companies to date. So that's sort of very briefly. For me and also for the audience, it's very interesting to learn about kind of the beginnings and how you became interested in this whole startup and uh, VC space. And I was reading on your website of your fund that you did your first investment uh, quite young. I think you bought shares in your favorite football club. Uh, yes. Could you retell the story of how you got interested into startup or company investing? 
Yes, so I'm not sure how well this translates to other countries, but in Denmark, uh, I think most places you do uh, these confirmations um, when you're around 13 or 14 years old. And in Denmark, it's very custom for for kids at that age to get uh, quite significant sums of money. Uh, I mean, I think that I would, I don't want to guess the average, but I would, I would assume somewhere around 1,000 to 1,500 euros. Like most young teenagers, I think most of that money goes to expensive clothes or, I don't know, tech gadgets or, uh, well, maybe in Denmark, uh, a little bit of beers. But in my case, I've, uh, I've always been quite interested in the stock markets. And, and, uh, and already back then, we had actually a tech company that, that was like very much Internet 1.0. Uh, and, and, and basically, there was this portal where you could check stocks and and, uh, and to see how the Danish companies were doing and how uh, what levels they were trading at and whatnot. So I'd always been quite interested in that. Um, and it, it sort of uh, happened to be that roughly around the same time that I got uh, well confirmed, I guess you say, um, my favorite football club was also doing a uh, new emission for shares. So uh, they were raising more money to expand and become you know one of the best clubs in Denmark and I, I thought oh my, this is perfect right it's like a, it's a way for me to invest uh, into uh, something I really care about and also it's a way for me to support my club so I actually took I would say while while my my friends were out spending the money on said expensive clothes and uh, mobile phones and, and whatever you bought at the time uh, I took uh, actually uh, most of my, my confirmation savings and uh, invested them into this emission. And I think to date, I still own, I believe it's 150 shares in my club, which I still very loyally support, uh, <laughs> albeit today from a distance. But uh, yeah, so uh, it's, uh, it was a fun story. And, and, and I think since then, it's actually propelled me to get a more organic interest in uh, the stock markets, right? And then, I mean, I remember that when I had saved... Uh, money, I would just casually start investing, and then I got some friends who were also really into this, and uh, so it's it's always been, I think it's always been a very organic interest for me. Uh, which football club was it, by the way? <laughs> would I know it? I, uh, oh, that depends on well, you know, Danish football. <laughs> uh, so it's it's a Danish club called FC Midtjylland. They're sort of. Uh, uh they're the they're the rangers to denmark celtic or the dortmund to germany's bayern uh, probably so they're sort of the the contenders for the title but but uh up against you know a, a bigger club from, from the the capital with, with more money but but they have their own ways and there's a reasonably successful i would say in the so, so depending on how deep into football you are, I yeah, I, I don't think I know it, but I also, to be honest, don't follow the Danish league that much. You <laughs> <laughs> do, but it's a it's a very interesting story. And after that, like, how did you kind of step then into the startup space? I you you mentioned in the intro that you also you started some companies on your own. Could you? retell that story how this happened yeah so uh so so during university i i was part of um starting a sort of classical old family business uh, and went through business school at the time thinking that you know the further ahead uh, i went into this sort of business school i would I, I was hoping that i would discover my passion and i think that 
as I sort of slowly uh, started my master's degree, I, I think this sort of uh, the sense of panic started creeping into me because I, I realized that what most of my friends and, and what most of my appears to do was sort of very, very far from what I wanted to do. So I always tell people that I was sort of, I was in the classical track to become either, either a management consultant or an investment banker, but, but sort of towards the end of my master's degree in the last year, I started sort of lightly panicking and, and, uh, and figured out that I had a lot of fun starting this company and, and really enjoyed working on, on my own. The company had gone quite well, so, so I, I felt like that entrepreneurial drive was always there. But I think at the time, I, and I think a lot of people have this perception that, that uh, my idea was that I would go work for a large corporate for five years and then, then sort of spin out when uh, I had enough experience to, to start a company. Um, but I had a really hard time finding a starting point. And, uh, and like I said, that sort of light sense of panic has sort of crept in and, and kept growing. So I applied to go to Stanford University. Uh, luckily, they, they took me in and, and they have an exchange program that runs typically over the summers. I spent, spent some time in, in, in Palo Alto and, and uh, I think for the first time realized that there's a whole ecosystem around starting companies. And if you are to start something today and, and you really want to make it big, uh, technology was probably not the worst place to be. So I think from there, my interest in tech and entrepreneurship just accelerated. Yeah. So naturally when I was done with my studies, I, uh, I, I took the, the, the first big leap and, and started a sort of classical startup with a friend of mine. What was your first company? What, what did you do? Yeah. So we were doing a real estate, uh, investing and development. It's, this is 2011. Like I said, it was a family business. It's, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's rarely something you do as a 20 year old. Yeah. Um, but, uh, we saw in the market back then that, um, 2011 was an interesting time to start a real estate company because you had this asset class that is almost universally linked to being like the safest and, and most like long-term, the best place to get long-term yield. Uh, yet because society was so leveraged sort of post-financial crisis, it actually meant that large portfolios were being sold off. And yeah, I think at the time everyone was basically paying off their debt. So, so the, the deals you could make in that market were, were great. And yeah, so we, we, we got at, at the same time, I mean, I think you had this, <laughs> once in a hundred year occurrence where you had, you know, incredibly low interest rates together with incredibly low prices. I think that's something I would say, at least in main cities, it's hard for those two things not to, not to fluctuate. So we, we started that company. I was sort of tasked with running it uh, for the first couple of years, which was a good experience. I, I wouldn't call it I mean, I think the difference between that kind of company and, and a startup is sort of not to be underestimated. And I think it's quite vast. Um, but, but I think we were incredibly lucky with timing and somewhat smart in, in, in the practice we bought and, and the sort of pretty aggressive expansion plan we had, especially in the, the first couple of years before the market sort of became more saturated. So yeah, I mean, I stepped off the company operationally <laughs> couple of years in it, it sort of grew beyond what I was capable of managing on the side of my studies, but it was a fun first experience. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it sounds like you really had a good sense of the opportunity. As you said, it was like a 
I guess, a rare occurrence of low interest rates and low prices and to then spot opportunity and then also act on it. I, I think it seems like, uh, yeah, not, not a lot of people can execute on both. So uh, I think uh, that, that's really interesting. And to go one step further, so I saw that one of your, I think now maybe more of the startups or that you founded, I think one was called the Reunited uh, Esports. Yes. So I was interested because I kind of follow the esports space myself. So I don't want to go too deep, but what did you do with this company? And are you still, you know, tracking that space also with your own uh, fund? So this was a startup I founded out of university. Uh, so, so I founded this company with a friend of mine. Um, we, we had this idea to build a novel esports brand. So we actually ran our own team uh, and the, thesis of our company back then was that we essentially wanted to pick up these rapidly developing titles and uh, could take more risk on, on betting on them earlier than, than most other teams would. Um, so we established a presence in, in two games. Uh, the, the main one was sort of Overwatch, uh, which was really taking off. Uh, we knew, uh, so this was back in 2016, uh, I should probably say, and, and, and uh, we knew from from couple of insights that at Blizzard, the publisher, that they were really gonna bet heavily on on this title. So yeah, we teamed up with with a really good team, and and we rose sort of up through the ranks. Around halfway into our company, we peaked we peaked as sort of non- world number one, uh, which was uh, quite fun. We went to all these events. We went two two months to South Korea. We played big tournaments in the U.S. and competed for hundreds of thousands of dollars in prize money so i think it was a for someone who up until then was sort of i, I always had like a background as a fan i mean i've been a fan for, for quite quite a few years and and uh this was uh, quite surreal in many ways because all of a sudden you were you were you were an active part of, of this uh this ecosystem and yeah and we raised we raised a bit of funding for this from the group angels so so also got a little bit of exposure to the the funding scene back then but unfortunately after a year um we we had to shut down um for which there are were many reasons i mean i think we were also quite immature and and that we were both newly graduated and 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 probably made significant mistakes along the way but 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 at the end of the day the the publisher wanted different things with their game so so the opportunity (laughs) that we found uh when 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 starting the company or (laughs) ultimately also became our downfall um which is, uh, yeah, I think it's a story of, of, uh, of startups. Just out of curiosity, like, how did you approach this to actually find the team and then to collaborate with them? I, I'm, I'm kind of curious because I, maybe just to give a bit of short background. So I follow personally Dota 2 quite a lot. And yeah. I, I would find it very hard to really, you know, kind of spot a great team and then I mean, I never did it, but then to kind of pitch to collaborate with them. So I'm curious, how did you approach this now for, for Overwatch? Yeah, so, so we were quite lucky, or rather I was quite lucky because uh, my co-founder, uh, still a very good friend of mine, uh, actually has background as a, as a professional player. So he used to play older titles, but he still had really deep connections within the industry. And, and he knew one of the teams that had been playing another title and actually now wanted to transition. Uh, they were at the time playing with a probably the largest organization in Europe uh, called Fnatic. Yeah, we also uh, got a few insights from them that they were not 
necessarily uh, that happy with life at Fanatic. So um, we managed to convince them to jump ship and, and, and essentially start this company with us um, from the scratch. And, and I think we, we all had this idea that we wanted to build an Overwatch first brand that was betting big on, on Overwatch really becoming the next big title, similar to a Dota, Counter-Strike. Or yeah. And you were then mainly managing the brand, like building up a brand and giving visibility yeah. and managing the team or yeah, what was your, as a company, what was your value proposition? Yeah, so I think like any any sports team, you you have a business model that, that roughly works the same way, right? I mean, I think that as a as an owner slash director of a company like that, your main goal is to bring in like commercial revenue. That's typically from sponsorships. It can be from prize money. It can be from like other sources. But I think in esports, it's still predominantly sponsorships. Uh, you're starting to see a few TV uh, deals come through, but it's still a still quite a young industry there. Um, then, of course, you manage somewhat the players, although in our case, uh, the players typically have their own coach that's sort of there on the ground with them. Uh, and yeah, you're ultimately responsible for building sort of a sports organization from scratch, whether that's hiring content creators or setting the strategy. And like, as with any founder in any company, I think at, at, the, at the beginning, you do everything. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that Definitely makes sense. And I think it sounds like a fascinating job to, to build up a, a sports or an esports team, especially because it's relatively new and you're probably figuring out everything from for the yeah. first time. So it sounds very exciting. So to switch gears a little bit, I'm really interested now in your fund, so Futuristic VC. And I read, or like you're probably one of the, the youngest VCs in Europe. So how did you make this decision to start a VC fund? And what is the origin story of, of Futuristic? Yeah, so, so when, we, when we shut down the company starting 2017, I felt like as, as eSports is certainly adjacent to, let's call it sort of more standard tech, there is still quite a gap. And I think as you just mentioned, that it's a very young industry. And it, it seemed to me that sort of old fire of, of classical sort of software-based technology sort of hadn't completely... There's an itch that needed to be scratched there, I would say. But I also knew at the time that I wasn't ready to start another company. So I think as with most people, their foray into VC is quite random. And certainly in my case... That was also the case. What I learned during my time with Reunited was really that the funding scene, so we were, we were based out of Copenhagen in Denmark, and, and, and I think what we saw back then was that the funding scene was incredibly mature and that most of the investors we had met uh, were not tech people. Uh, they typically had backgrounds from large corporates or, I mean, maybe they were entrepreneurs or so company but it was typically not within tech and, and they had a very hard time relating to tech right i think that you know i i always say that i think their their view and and probably rightly so at the time was that though they wouldn't invest in stuff they didn't understand um which i think for the record is a great investment strategy <laughs> um but the problem was that that i looked at my own ecosystem copenhagen and i thought well if, if copenhagen is 
if what gets funded and comes out of Copenhagen is to be defined by uh, what non-tech people understand, well, then I believe there's a chance to fund uh, the other stuff that if you do have that, that, that tech background or if you have that understanding of, of technology, uh, you, you could certainly find companies that the market was either missing or uh, for whom uh, that sort of breed of investors were not that attractive. So I slowly started out investing. So I, I, I took a, a bit of the proceeds I had made from my first venture and, and started investing that sort of on an angel level with small checks into, uh, into companies. And uh, yeah, I think things, things accelerated from there. I mean, the, the fund sort of came together as, as more of a, you know, family, friends, uh, people who also wanted exposure to this asset class. I mean, I was obviously investing a lot of my own capital, so, so I think they felt like uh, this, was a, this was a decent bet to be making. And that became really futuristic. Yeah, I, I would say that's probably sort of the, the origin story. It's yeah. obviously unfolded over six to 12 months. So it, it sounds like you kind of shifted from doing your own angel investments then that people were like getting interested in that and then kind of allocating some of their own capital to you, if I understood this right. So did you actually like go out to fundraise from LPs or was it more really like, uh, yeah, like you got families and friends and, and that together to raise this fund? No, I was obviously in a very privileged position. One, because I, I had made some money on my own, which, <laughs> which makes starting out a lot easier. And of course, also already had a network of, of people and a family of course that, that that were were supportive of this so i never went out to, i think uh, to be honest at the time thinking about racing from external lps i call them external uh, let's call them anything that's not people you uh, sort of have that working relationship with was was completely unrealistic i mean i was 25 years old i had at the time zero track record and spent one year out of university uh I think it was hard for a lot of LPs to see why this would be anything worth investing in. And I think at the time, my strategy was not very set in stone either. I think I had some ideas, but I think that that really started to form 12 months into investing. Mm -hmm. So I, I, would, I don't think it would have been a very uh, attractive uh, prospect for, for other LPs. <laughs> so yeah, I fully understand that. And I think uh, it is very hard in the VC space to really build that track record. It's a bit of a chicken egg problem because it takes such a long time to build up a track record because the feedback loops are that long. But then at one point you, you have to start. Also, I, and I guess for emerging fund managers, it's kind of difficult to show that they have the capabilities, but you, you have not really anything to show yet for it. It's a bit of a challenge. Yeah, I think fundamentally we build VC funds very differently to how we build companies. Look, when you're starting a company, right, you're not getting, no one is giving you 80 million to start with, right? I mean, people are seeding you, they're giving you something to sort of prove out the basics. And, and I think that mechanism still doesn't really exist in VC, mainly because, you know, the models haven't really been rethought. Uh, a lot of larger LPs are sort of still quite conservative with this. Um, so the, the people who are sophisticated, you know, are not doing this because deploying such small amounts of capital is sort of rarely attractive. Mm. Uh, and then I think the fundamental thing, and this is why I think this is sort of 
an industry that's quite barred from a lot of people, right? That one of the advice I always got from when I was thinking about racing from large LPs was that just go race from your network. Like, you know, I mean, go race from the people you know and the people you work with. But I always said, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in my 20s, right? That, that amount of people is quite limited. Yeah. So I think that a lot of the advice you get is sort of very well-meaning. But as a young manager, it's very hard to break through those. And I certainly could not have done it without coming from the position I did. Mm-hmm. Um, but which yep. is a shame. Thanks for sharing that. As a next step, can you briefly tell the audience about Futuristic VC, just that they get an idea about the fund, where you invest in, and what type of companies uh, you're looking for? Yeah. Yeah, so today Futuristic is a $4 million uh, fund. We invest, I say we, that's a, a, me. I invest mostly in the Nordics. So like I said, Danish by, uh, by nationality. And, and uh, I think going back to the previous story, I, I quickly realized that uh, this problem of lack of solid uh, understanding within the angel community was not a Danish problem. It was more of a Nordic problem. At the same time, I think there's a, limited amount of companies coming out of these quite small cities and ecosystems. So for me to really feel like I was getting the exposure in a strong enough portfolio, uh, I needed to invest outside of just uh, Copenhagen and Denmark. Um, so yeah, like I said in the intro, I've been building this fund over the last three years, roughly, with a portfolio of 23 companies. My focus has at least historically been pre-seed, uh, which means I've uh, gone as early as possible. I've always felt like if I wanted to learn properly, I had to try to almost play in an asset class where I could be dominant and not just get invited into occasional deals through goodwill. Uh, so it's been tough. I mean, I've certainly made my mistakes, but I think that you also get a lot more of the credit when you're not investing alongside big established names, but rather going out to, to source these companies from the moment they're founded and, and, and helping them, um, which has been an incredibly rewarding journey. Yeah, and I, I always felt like that was where there was really a gap. Uh, you know, I, I think like, like any solid investor who will always tell you that there's a gap for exactly what they do. Uh, but, but I actually think that, w- that was what... Um, that was what the region needed at the time um, because it wasn't that there was a lack of wealthy people willing to invest their own money into companies. It was that there was a lack of people doing that while also simultaneously understanding the ecosystem, helping founders, creating value for them by, you know, getting them in front of follow on investors and, and all these type of things. Right. So you had a lot of people where, like I think at, and at the time, right. As it is today, money was becoming commoditized. So, so building that position by being willing to work harder and run faster than most other people uh, is great. And I think that's the good thing when you're competing against, uh, well, competing is sort of uh, citations, but when you're up against uh, angel investors, you know, it's, uh, it's typically a breed of people that uh, at least for a large part of them are semi-retired, mm-hmm. uh, which meant that uh, with my age and <laughs> my willingness to run and fly and do all the things that they didn't want to do. And I, I think uh, over time that, that 
that that built me something. Mm -hmm. And how would you find the companies? Was it really that because there was this gap that they actually approached you already, or how did you build up your deal flow? I think this is really, I imagine, one of the key challenges as a new fund to build up a deal flow. And also that you then get into the rounds with, with the value add that you can bring. So what, what are your thoughts on that? And how did you uh, tackle these problems? Yes, I think when you look at pre-seed, uh, like as a, as a sort of stage of investing, the way you really build your deal flow is through networks. I think that there are some new attempts to try to sort of moneyball it, uh, but it, it's, it's, it's incredibly hard. Uh, so to me, it was a lot of, it was a lot of meetings. It was a lot of traveling um, and just talking to people. I think that you're trying to not only convince the founders that you'd be great for them in, in a specific deal. You're also trying to convince other investors that, you know, inviting you into a deal makes sense. And frankly, I think that I did a lot of the things that all the others didn't want to do. Right. So I made the trips to London, to Berlin, to really connect with the follow on scene for funding, which was all of a sudden built me huge leverage with other more sort of grounded angels that then, you know, I think for them, they realized that, you know, having me involved was a good idea because all of a sudden you had, you had this person running around in these bigger ecosystems and really, you know, promoting the companies and, and uh, helping them also raise from, from different sources, right? I think a lot of the angels were also tired of, of their companies only having the opportunity to raise with the two or three local VCs that were sort of in their backyard. Mm. And then I think, yeah, for the founders, right? I think that there's, there's, there's always like multiple components of how do you convince founders to take you on, right? And I think that there's like two things, right? There's the soft components and the hard components, right? So I think... The soft components are very, very hard to sort of put on a bottle. I think that this has a lot to do with chemistry and empathy and like how well do you connect with, with founders? Like, like can they see you as a, someone they can come to for advice? Do they, they also believe that you have at least some view of the world that can be valuable to them? And then I think you have sort of like the harder <laughs> assets, which is like in my case was this... I always say that I, if, if I couldn't win deals purely on the soft skills, I would always, uh, you know, pull up my Excel sheet with uh, the 50 funds in my network. And uh, that, that usually did the trick. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's, that's really how anyone wins any deals mm -hmm. when you don't have a Sequoia style brand. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think it's, yeah, it's getting more and more important to have these value adds as a fund or to build a relationship with, with the founders as a, as a GP to get into these deals and to also yeah. help the startups. But I think we're really in a market, if, if I may, I think we're really in a market today where everyone is obsessing about their sort of like hard value adds. Um, but I think that the softer parts of things are just very hard to compensate for with hardcore value adds, right? I mean, I think that if you look at firms like Benchmark or these others that don't have, you know, a full setup like, like so many other funds, ultimately the reason why people pick them is because they're damn good board members. Uh, and, and, you know, these sounds like classic virtues, but at the end of the day, 
if you're a sensible founder, that's what you pick the first, right? You pick great advice, you pick people that's seen it before. And that stuff is a mode that's incredibly hard to sort of penetrate, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that there's a lot of people that are obsessing about the hardware and, and like the stuff they can build into their value add, quote unquote, uh, when they should be obsessing about how do they hire smarter partners. Yep. Yeah, thanks for adding that. I think that's a very good point. And looking at the time, I think I would, I would love to dig deeper into futuristic, but maybe let's switch to now, given that you told us about yeah your, your, your own companies that you built and also about futuristic, what are your learnings, let's say, that you look back and you say to yourself, okay, I would have done that different if I knew X, for example. So is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah. I think if, if you look at it from an investment point of view, I think that my advice to all new investors is to not pull the trigger early. And I think that um, my own mistakes, and this is where starting on your own certainly costs something because you don't have a, a partner to sort of uh, tell you, hey, maybe, <laughs> maybe not do this investment. But I think the way VCs work at the end of the day is really how computers use these sorting algorithms, right? And then like within sort of computer science, it's a very simple sorting algorithm called like the insertion sort, right? And I think that's really how startups work as well when you're a VC, right? That you sort of be like, you constantly rank things against each other, but for you to really get a grasp of what like really good founders look like, you have to have seen a lot of deals, right? And actually the problem is that you might even come across a really good company early on, but because that sort of like algorithm is not fully functional yet, right? I mean, you can, you can tell that it's a better company than the other 10 companies, but you can't tell whether it's an order of magnitude better, right? So I think that for all new investors, it's very, it's very common to invest in five or 10 companies out of the first 100 you meet where the real way you should probably do it is to meet a hundred companies and pick the best one. And that's the only one you invest in, right? And, and I mean, for me, I mean, I certainly make the same mistake, right? And I look back at those investments now, and then now that my sort of sorting is a lot more tight, I can certainly see what were the mistakes uh, in making those, those decisions. Yeah, I, I think that was my, I mean, but that's like, that's a hard lesson learned, right? Because that's typically a lesson that costs money. Um, of course, uh, a lot of softer lessons and a lot of uh, things, but at the end of the day, the less money you can lose in the beginning, uh, you'll do well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thinking about also your learnings from starting your own companies, is there something that you would also tell the companies you invest in as an advice or just as something that you took away from your experience as a founder? Yeah, I think pick your co-founders wisely. I, I mean, I was lucky to to have a really good co-founder whom I actually uh, managed to sustain a really good relationship with. But but I, I see a lot of the the opposite, uh, where that ends up costing the company. I think a lot of startups today obsess over the wrong things. I think that a lot of patience goes into building a company. I think that. Company building in the early stages is really about patience and focus, focusing on the things that matter. And I think that there is this 
uh, and this is also this also by the way comes back to investors giving poor advice uh, but i do think that a lot of founders have this tendency to focus on sort of classical business metrics because when you look at a public company revenue matters right and, and yeah i'm not saying revenue doesn't matter but but is that really the thing you should be focusing on in your first year right i think that there is a tendency for 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 people to focus on growth because investors are telling them you know oh we need to hit x revenue number for for uh for this to be sustainable but i will say that the best founders i've worked with and the best founders i've seen they are completely obsessive over product market fit uh, and they manage to sort of think incredibly long term in a world that's almost screaming at them all the time to be short term in their focus and i think that managing to have that long term view while also being able to fundraise and still sell people on your vision is 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 uh, is crucial it's very easy to get drawn into the short term trying to monetize everything which can come back to bite you yeah yeah i think that's uh, very valuable advice the the product market fit and the the co-founder and the the team it's so crucial also from my experience and I cannot state that high enough so let's before we wrap up as as a last one or two questions more rapid fire style i like to ask yeah. my guests about their best investment and this can also i guess in your case it can be an investment in a company but it could also be an investment of your time or energy into something so is there anything that comes to mind as a best investment oh that's that's a very tough one to define um I th- my best investments I, i would say is starting my fund um i think this has been not just a game changer for me professionally but also for my identity i think that i used to have this idea that this was just a thing i was doing in between companies but i actually discovered that that this is 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 probably the journey or this probably the path that i'm going to be on for the rest of my career um well at least for the foreseeable future when i started out it certainly seemed very risky i was working alone that did not seem very compelling and there was obviously this fear that what if i lose all my money mm-hmm. um but i must say that this has uh, been a tremendous journey so far and, and incredibly happy that i made that um decision mm-hmm. it it sounds like an exciting journey definitely and thank you so much for for sharing part of that here on the podcast and before we wrap up i always ask my guest as a last question in relation to the name of the podcast the leap takers podcast what does courage mean to you um i think courage to me is the ability to trust your own ways especially in light of other people doubting you i think that humans are programmed to seek social acceptance for everything they do in life but that's also why most people are not happy with their careers and relationships and and what not and i think that it requires incredible courage to go against sort of your evolutionary desires and i really respect the people who who do it and and always try to to err on that side when making my own sort of decisions 
Great. Thank you very much for, for that last part of advice. And thank you so much, Christian, for coming on the, the podcast. I really appreciate your time. And to close things off, where can people find more about you um, or Futuristic if they want to check you out online? Yeah, uh, I write occasionally on, on my Medium as well. So uh, if you want to see more thoughts, I think that's probably the places I would go. And most of my futuristic stuff is on there as well. Okay, cool. I'll make sure to link to everything and also all the stuff you mentioned before uh, in the show notes of the podcast. So the listeners, cool. you can find everything there as well. Great. Then nice. thank you so much, Christian, for taking the time and sharing your insights with us today. Likewise, it's super enjoyable. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You could do me a really big favor if you would just tell one of your friends about the Leap Takers podcast and recommend it. Or if you want to do even more, quickly head over to the iTunes or Apple podcast store and give the Leap Takers podcast a five-star rating. This would really help me to get more visible and that I'll be able to continuously bring on great guests to this show. Thank you so much. Also, if you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, just shoot me a message. You can find all my contact info on leaptakers.com or you can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram where you can find me under Remo Keyboards or just follow the Leap Takers podcast directly in Instagram as well. So having said that, thanks again for listening and have a great week. Bye-bye.